and welcome to Insights Abroad. This podcast is part of the Middle East and South Asia Initiative in the College of Sciences at the University of Central Florida. My name is Valeria Palonero. Our mission here is to educate, engage, and influence the international community. Today, I'm joined by Ms. Laura Collins. Laura Collins serves as the director with the Bush Institute of Economic Growth Initiative at the George W. Bush Institute. Collins previously served as the director of immigration policy at the American Action Forum. She has experience in politics, working as a senior research analyst at the Republican National Committee for the 2012 election cycle and in the Texas House of Representatives for the 82nd legislature. A former practicing attorney, Collins earned a JD from the, from the University of Texas School of Law and a BBA from the University of Oklahoma. Welcome, Ms. Collins. It's so good to have you today. Thank you so much for having me on this morning. <laughs> So tell us a little bit about your role as a director in the Bush Center. So I don't know how familiar you are with the George W. Bush Institute, but we're based in Dallas. We're on the SMU campus, and we work on a variety of areas. One of them is Military Service Initiative, where we talk about post-9-11 vets and their needs, employment, and, and health needs. We talk about education reform. How do we make sure that our schools are educating uh, the next generation of workers in an effective way? Um, we talk about economic growth, which is where I work. Uh, we talk about trade and we talk about immigration. We talk about domestic growth and what are the things that we need to do um, in government to, to spur these, uh, to spur stronger economic growth. We talk about human freedom and the importance of human rights and democracy abroad. We have leadership training where we bring in uh, mid-career professionals from a variety of areas uh, domestically to train them in leadership. And also we work on democracy building in Burma. We also have a women's initiative leadership where we work with women in the Middle East and North Africa. And we have a first ladies initiative where we look at women's leadership through the lens of a first spouse. And what does that mean and what does that office hold? I'm very blessed to work on immigration policy. We really think immigration is key to pro-growth economic policy, and that it really matters for the future growth of this country, and that it's been a, an important piece of everything that we've done to, in becoming the world's uh, most, uh, the world's best economy and and the uh, world superpower that we are. Um, you know, we've been since the beginning. If you go back to the Declaration of Independence there's a line in there about the king um, not allowing more people to move to the colonies. So immigration's been just an issue top of mind in this country since our founding. Yes, and you talk about how immigration has been a really big issue um, in the past, but it has changed in the past couple of years, the discourse and how we talk about it. How do you think it has changed and shaped the way we think today? You know, I get that question a lot. I think that in recent history, people have really noticed the rhetoric, the dialogue on the rhetoric being turned up and it being a more heated conversation. But if you look in our past at other times when there were large waves of immigrants, there were lots of things that were said about each wave that were really pretty bad. Um, and we, I think, would be shocked by some of the language used to describe Italians and Irish and even Germans. I mean, if you look at things that Ben Franklin said, he even didn't like German immigrants, thought they were never going to assimilate, they were never going to speak English, they were never going to rise. And if you look at the US, there are a lot of German immigrants, no more German language newspapers, right? So we know that over time these things change. What I think is different about right now is that we've been in a period of time where 
we haven't had significant immigration reform in decades. Um, the face of the United States is changing a little bit. We have a lower birth rate than we've had in the past where native-born women are not having enough children to, uh, to support the population. We have a roaring economy, so we have uh, most people who want to work have a job, um, but there are lots of jobs going unfilled. And so what we've seen really is that there is a great need for immigration. And yet the rhetoric around it isn't, isn't as responsible as we'd like to see. We really like fact-based conversations and turning down the dial on that at the Bush Institute to talk about you know, what really matters here. And that is that we need, we need this workforce and immigrants do contribute to our economy. Yes, and um, talking about the economy and how immigration plays a role, um, there's a lot of talks and a lot of people saying that um, immigration is quote-unquote bad because it takes the job of um, Americans living here. Um, so how would you refute this? Yeah, I think that's a broad misconception. Anyone that's taken basic economics immediately goes to a very static supply and demand. And really what we know though from, and this is true of whether it's an immigrant or just a domestic migrant going from one state to another, uh, it's not a one-to-one. -one. So anyone that comes here to work and to quote take a job, uh, they also consume goods and services. So they create demand in other places. Uh, so it's not just a static supply and demand. There's not just a one-to-one. -one. They are creating jobs just by virtue of living here and spending their money. And, and a lot of the times, the jobs that immigrants come to fill are jobs that um, there are shortages in for Amer um, American workers don't want to work in them, or we don't have enough people in those skill sets to work in those areas. So it's a broad misconception that immigrants are coming here to take our jobs. Yes, they are coming here to work, but they're often not taking a job from an American. Yes, and um, one of the recommendations made by the Bush Institute um, is that Congress should expand the high-skilled visa program. Um, can you explain a little bit of what this program is and how would expanding that sector um, will affect the economy? Yeah, so there's a couple of different components of this. One is that we have an immigration system that is primarily focused on family reunification. Uh, we really think that we should switch that and have more people coming in based on their skills and education to fill the jobs that we have open than based on family reunification. Um, and the second part of that, you mentioned the high-skilled visa, is that we have these temporary worker visa programs. The high-skilled one is the H-1B. Some of, your, uh, some of your listeners probably heard of this. Some of them may actually be trying to get an H-1B visa when they graduate from college. And it's a program that's capped at about 85,000 visas per year. But we know that in the visa lottery, the demand is so great among employers in the United States that all of those visas are used up within a week of the lottery opening every single year. So clearly the demand is there, clearly the jobs are there, and there aren't, we're not producing enough workers with those skill sets here in the United States. Uh, workers in those skill sets tend to be big economic producers. They tend to be low users of entitlement benefits. They tend to pay more in taxes. They tend to have more disposable income. Those are things that spur the economy. And so for that reason, that's an important part of immigration as economic growth. But even more than that, if you're going to have an immigration system that is there set up to meet the needs of your economy, it's got to be market-based. And an artificial cap that restricts the number of people who can come in and work, and H-1Bs, by the way, are temporary, right? They can only work for three years. You can renew it again, so they can be here for a total of six years. You can convert to a green card at that point, and we'll keep renewing your visa as long as you continue to meet the requirements. But they're not here permanently. 
unless they choose to be, unless they choose to become Americans. So it's a really good way to meet the needs of a fluctuating market because if for some reason that demand drops, it's just that there are fewer temporary workers coming in because there are fewer employers seeking visas. And so it's a really, temporary workers are a really nice way to fill the gaps in the economy on a way that isn't going to um, fundamentally change the demographics of the United States in the future. Besides changing and shifting the economy of the United States, how do you think um, bringing these um, workers um, and these immigrants would shape the culture of various sectors? Yeah, you know, immigration, one of the great things about immigration is it does, that it does shape culture. And it's not just that immigrants shape our culture, we shape them as well. And that's part of the assimilation and integration process. And it's a beautiful thing. It's one of the reasons that uh, we have such a diverse, rich culture in the United States. And there's growing pains always with that. You know, it doesn't always, it's not always instantaneous. Um, and, and temporary workers will leave their mark as well because there will be things that they want and there will be markets that spring up to meet those needs. And, and, but I do think what you end up seeing with a lot of temporary workers is that they really like the opportunities and the freedom in the United States. They want to stay here, you know, particularly with H-1Bs. We know that it's a visa heavily used by um, mostly Indians. And so we, we know that when they come here, they want to convert to employment-based green cards. And unfortunately, because of the caps we have in our immigration system, for certain categories, certain education levels of Indians on H-1B visas, the wait time is something like 151 years to get your green card, which means you're never going to get it, which means you're never going to be a U.S. citizen. You're never going to be able to fully participate in the United States. And if you brought a child with you who's two, they're going to age out of the system before they can become a citizen. All of a sudden you've created a child that was raised here that's now undocumented. And, you know, and then you'll have, some of them will have American-born children who are obviously citizens. And oftentimes their spouses are not allowed to work. If you're on a temporary visa, there's a program the Obama administration started um, that allowed certain a certain segment of H-1B spouses to work under their H-4 work visa. Oh, it wasn't a work visa, excuse me, under their H-4 um, residential visa. Uh, the Trump administration has sought to roll that back um, and go back to what it was before. And so you're effectively asking people who often also have high skills and, and lots of education to either work in the underground economy, uh, find a way around the rules, or stay home. And those aren't choices I want people to have to make because we're forcing them to. If they want to stay home, they should stay home because they want to, not because they're not able to work. So what we know happens is that um, Canada is really taking advantage of our system that is just really dysfunctional. And Canada says, hey, you can come be a citizen in two years. We're going to make your children citizens. We're, we've got jobs for you. And your spouses can work the minute you arrive. And so while I would love to cooperate with Canada on things like trade, they're a great ally to us, they're a wonderful neighbor, I want to beat them on immigration. I don't want to lose out on the world's best talent that wants to come to the United States because we are the number one destination for migrants worldwide for a reason, because there is so much opportunity here. Um, but if we don't have a system that accommodates that, we're really losing out to places like Canada. Yeah. Um, and I think we often talk about immigration and we don't know like everything that it entails and um, what people actually have to go through to get you know a worker's visa or whatever their papers be a like legal immigrant in the United States can you tell us a little bit more about like how that process would look like 
Yeah, you know, I think it's different depending on the category. Um, as I mentioned before, the vast majority of immigration to the United States is um, made through family connections and family reunification. So the number one way if you want to um, immigrate to the U.S. is you need to first ask yourself, do I have a family member who is either a legal permanent resident, has a green card, or is a citizen? And if I do, are they in the category of family members that the government recognizes as one that can sponsor me to come in? The second thing you have to ask yourself is if you don't have family, do you have the skills and education to qualify for an employment-based green card? Which typically means you have at least a bachelor's degree or more. And not only that, is there a company there with a job open willing to hire me and sponsor me for that process? And we only give out about 7% of the visas on employment for employment or skills. They're the Depending on where you're looking at the stats, the numbers may look higher. A lot of the extra numbers that you're seeing in that are actually the ones that go to um, the spouses and children that accompany them. So they're not coming in on their skills, but we are giving them an employment-based green card, essentially. Um, if you don't have either of those, and you have to decide, do I qualify for a temporary worker visa, which would allow me only to stay temporarily, um, and good luck. Those are definitely difficult to get. As we mentioned, H-1Bs for people with either bachelor's or master's degrees, um, typically in STEM fields, only 85000 a year. Uh, for if you're uh, an unskilled worker or a lower skilled worker or you have less education. Um, if you're an agricultural worker, we have a visa for that. Uh, we also have one for non-agricultural work, but those are seasonal visas. They only last so long and you cannot convert that to a green card. So if you want to come here, you're pretty limited. Uh, we also have the diversity visa, which is a lottery system, which is how people who don't have family or skills to get here typically are able to, to but we only have about 50,000 of those a year. So we have a very open system in some ways, but not in others. Um, we also have humanitarian immigration, which involves a lot of vetting, particularly if you are a refugee and you're in the refugee system. And we work with the United Nations on that. Um, obviously, people have talked about asylum seekers a lot in the last year because of what's going on along the southwest border. There's a process for that as well. Not everyone makes it through. And if you don't make it through, we're going to deport you. And that's the way that works. Um, so it's just very, I think, I think people assume that it's the same as when their great-grandparents came in through Ellis Island. It's really not. It's a lot more difficult. And we do a lot, and some of it has good reason. We want to make sure we know who's coming in. We want to make sure that the people who are coming in are going to thrive. Um, but it's a lot more complicated than just showing up. Yes. Um, and you said you're talking about different um, visas and different programs, but we know that there's a cap and a limit to who we can accept. Um, do you think raising this cap um, would be beneficial to us? Yeah, so I think one of the things that is really misunderstood about this process is that depending on where you're from, it may your waiting in line may take a lot longer for you. Um, if you're from a country that typically sends a lot of immigrants to the United States, we have what are called per country caps. And so no more than a certain percentage of immigrants um, in the number that we bring in every year can come from any one country. So if you're from a country that sends a lot of immigrants like Mexico or the Philippines and increasingly China and India, you're looking at a 20-year wait time. And that's when you're doing everything right. And that's assuming that none of your paperwork gets rejected and that's assuming that everything checks out. And that's really a long time, especially for people who want to see their family again. And so we're asking people to sit in an interminable wait, essentially. And so if you lift the per country caps and you just let 
Um, people come in based on what spot they get in line relative to the rest of the world. You've eased those backlogs a little bit so that you're not having that pressure. And those are pressures that create things like illegal immigration. You know if you can't have the opportunity to join your family. You might be tempted, if life's not very good at home, to take a tourist visa to come see them and then just stay. And we don't want to create those incentives in the system. We want people to follow the rules, but the rules need to be such that people are incentivized to use them instead of feel desperate and unable to use them. And it's interesting that you say um, the family reunification is um, very high in this country and it's why we give most of our visas. Um, do you think that is beneficial over having like more high-skilled workers? Yeah, you know, I think this always ends up being a controversial point. Um, family, we've always had a system based on family reunification and our, our competitor nations, if you will, other nations with similar economies to us, bring in far more of their immigrants based on education and skills. So we know if we're looking at this as a driver of economic growth, it's more beneficial for us to flip it. It's also just good for our industries. We know they need workers. Um, and if they have the ability to go out and recruit workers um, in a system that values skills and employment more, then they're going to be better able to meet the needs um, of their industries. One of the things that's kind of interesting, though, is that even in a system that is not geared towards economic growth, one of the things we've seen is that more and more immigrants arriving through the family reunification system are actually quite well-educated. Well Many of them have bachelor's degrees already, uh, more so than we've seen in the past. And so you've got a system that's already bringing in highly educated people, even though it's not designed to do that. So in designing any immigration reform, that's one of the things that's gonna to have to be taken into consideration is, you know, how does this look? What do we need to do given the population that's already coming in? And keeping in mind that, unfortunately, a lot of the bachelor's degrees granted in other parts of the world aren't, don't hold the same weight here. And you may be a licensed plumber or a licensed electrician in your home country, but we don't recognize that license here. And so does that impede your ability to fully work here? What, do we, what are the hurdles we put in place to make sure that you are fully integrated into the economy? So those are things that are just little things that have to be considered when you design a system. Family reunification is good. We want people to have their families here. We know that that support structure is important and it really helps them to be comfortable and further assimilate and integrate into the US. Um, but we do, for a growth reason, really want to make sure we're bringing in people who can plug the holes in our economy and fill those needs. Mm -hmm. um, and we're talking about the difficulties of getting into the country, but what, are you, what do you think are some of the difficulties that immigrants face when they're already in the United States? What do you think are the most relevant issues to them? You know, there is a broad misconception that immigrants today don't assimilate as quickly as immigrants in decades past, which is not true. They actually do assimilate quite quickly. Um, one of the things I think is the biggest challenge though, and has always been one of the biggest challenges, is English language acquisition we are an English-speaking country. And if you are going to fully succeed here, you need to learn the language. And so we know immigrants want to learn it. We know that they're trying very very hard to learn it. Uh, we know that their children often pick up English very quickly. But if there is an immigrant that is having difficulty learning English or hasn't had the opportunity to go to a class, can't find the time because of the job, that is one of the barriers that they really face to full integration into the US society. Um, but it's one that's 
easily fixed because we know that if there are organizations out there providing that um, immigrants are willing and eager to learn, they want to do that, they want to be part of part of what we're doing here. And so that is, I think, um, one of the biggest barriers they face. Um, you know, rhetoric, political rhetoric about them aside, I think most people are actually quite welcoming to the immigrants in their communities, um, particularly because it's a lot easier to be welcoming to people who are your friends and neighbors and your coworkers, people you know, uh, because you see them as people, not as, um, for lack of a better term, not as objects. They're not as a statistic. Um, you see them as human beings. Um, you talk about asylum seekers and refugees and we know that has changed in the past couple of years we know that there's have been more issues surrounding um, that what are you what do you think we should do about it and how do you think we should talk about it and discuss it and um, make it a relevant issue you know we've always talked about immigration from an economic perspective uh, but we've noticed that that's not enough anymore and one of in the fall I was trying to think about you know what am I going to do for 2020 what's my work plan going to look like what am I going to how am I going to expand my policy recommendations and we've really been talking a lot at the Bush Institute about you know how do we talk about humanitarian immigration because it does matter to us we have a whole program um, that grants scholarships to North Koreans, uh, North Korean refugees who have fled the regime there and who are trying to establish themselves in the U.S. So this is obviously something near and dear to our hearts. And you know, the Sunday after Christmas, I was sitting in church, and the priest said in his homily um, that too often modern society only values people based on their economic worth. And people have inherent worth, and we need to recognize that. And I thought, that's it. You know, that's that's really what I've been trying to do is how do we talk about people's inherent worth? You know, we are so blessed in the United States. We live in the greatest country in the world. And we have so much freedom and opportunity. And we're in a time where there are more people displaced globally than there ever have been. For a variety of reasons, we'll just call it instability. Some of it's about food insecurity. Some of it's about um, civil war. But in general, there's just a lot of people who have felt the need to migrate. And so we have an obligation, I think, as this country to, to be the refuge if we can. And the refugee program, I think people don't fully understand, is highly secure. People go through a lot of vetting. It takes a long time for them to be, um, to be cleared, to move here. And then refugees resettle. We have a lot of agencies, nonprofits, an infrastructure that exists to resettle them and get them fully integrated into American society. And they actually do so quite quickly. They need a little help when they get here to get on their feet, um, but pretty quickly they become self-sufficient. And they're so grateful for the opportunity to live in a place with freedom and opportunity and stability. And you know, asylum seekers, that's a really tough topic right now because I think that what you see with the asylum system right now some people will say it's broken and that everyone's trying to cheat it and take advantage of it. What I really see is a symptom of a broader dysfunctional immigration system. Because if you have someone here coming to seek asylum, but really they're really looking for a job. Yes, life might not be great at home, but they really just want a job opportunity and they know their only way in is to declare asylum and try their luck that way. That's a symptom of an immigration system that is not working at all because they should have a different opportunity. They shouldn't feel the need to use a system not designed for economic migrants to try to gain legal entry because crossing the border illegally and then saying that you're here for asylum, that's, that's technically legal entry, you know, that we have a process for that. 
So I, you know, it's just I, I think that these are issues we didn't think we were going to have to talk about um, broadly as a society, but now they're here and they're issues that are very that are very timely and very relevant. And I think it is important for all of us who care about these issues to to really do our research and and see what the facts are and make sure that we have an informed opinion. There are going to be people who have a different opinion from me on asylum and on refugees, and maybe they maybe they don't think we should be the place that takes them in. Maybe there are other countries that need to do that. You know, as we saw in the state of Texas, you know, Governor Abbott said, "Hey, we always take in all these refugees. Other states should do it." I happen to disagree with that perspective. I think Texas is a great place to resettle a refugee. We have tons of opportunity. We have tons of jobs, um, and it's okay for people to have a different opinion. I want their opinions to be based in facts, though, and so. Um, uh, making sure that we understand what we're talking about uh, before we have a fully formed opinion is really important when we're talking about something as sensitive as refugees and asylum seekers. Yes, and thinking now to the economic side of um, asylum seekers, um, many people say that it creates a dent in our economy because um, they rely on federal programs and such. How do you think we should see this, address this issue, how do you, how would you talk about this or refute this? Yeah, most immigrants actually use entitlement benefits at a lower rate than native-born Americans do. And we know their labor force participation rate is higher than for native-born Americans. And so we know they're here to work. Uh, we know they're here not to, um, to take entitlement benefits. If you're here as a, if you're here as a legal immigrant on a green card, we require that you are here for five whole years before you're allowed most entitlement benefits. There's a limited number. You know, we don't, the WIC program for um, women and children doesn't have restrictions on that for obvious reasons. There's a public health reason behind that. We want them, we want children to have nutrition. We want uh, pregnant moms and nursing moms to have access to nutrition for their children. Um, so there's a limited amount of what people are able to, to take. Um, but in general, they're not entitled, they can't get any entitlement benefits for five years. So they're here working and paying into the systems that support the rest of us, the safety net that's there for all of us, um, without being able to take advantage of it. And they're really just not a drain on the benefit system that we think they are. And assuming that you can fix the insolvency problems of things like Social Security on the backs of immigrants is, is false. You know, those are domestic policy issues that need their own solutions. Immigration policy, those aren't immigration problems. People try to make them immigration problems, but they're not. Yes, um, and one of the current issues or current things we're talking about right now is um, sanctuary cities. And they're being addressed now. And um, can you tell us um, what are some challenges sanctuary cities are facing right now as policies are changing, and what are some of the economic and social advantages and disadvantages of um, this, these sanctuary cities? You know, I think sanctuary cities is so difficult because there, I think there is a role for state and local governments to cooperate with the federal government on immigration enforcement. And I think it's for each one of those communities to decide what their role is going to be because that's part of our federal system, right? And that's how we've always interacted, and states and local governments have always interacted with the federal government. I think that each one of those communities has to make a decision. You know, is a policy that we're doing going to have an unintended consequence? So if they have a policy of openness and welcome to the immigrant community, 
knowing that some of those people aren't necessarily going to be here legally, but if that helps them have a safer city and track down the people they need to track down, um, I think that's for the city and that law enforcement in the city to determine if that's right for them. Um, you know, there, I do think that, you know, it's just so, it's such a heated topic, you know, immigrants and criminality. Immigrants commit crimes at a much lower level than the native-born population. Even the undocumented immigrant population commits crimes at a much lower level than the immigrant population, which I think surprises a lot of people. But generally, you've just got people here who want to work. They want to keep their heads down. They want to raise their families, and they want to be prosperous, just like the rest of us do. And so it really is incumbent upon states and local communities to decide what it is that makes the most sense for their areas, particularly on law enforcement. I know the state of Florida was talking about sanctuary cities. Um, the state of Texas went through this a couple years ago. Um, cities really do, city and local law enforcement really does know what makes their city safer. And so we need to trust local government to understand what's going to be good for them. And you know, they're not always gonna get it right. But I think that anytime you're having a policy, you have to always look at the unintended consequence. And if the unintended consequence of, of eliminating any quote unquote sanctuary city policy is that people don't feel like they can go to the police to report true criminals in their communities, then you're just aiding criminality instead of helping make sure we have a safe, prosperous community for everybody. And you say that immigration and some of these topics are very heated topics mm -hmm. as of right now. Um, as college students, how do you think that we should talk about these topics openly without that? How do you think we should open up um, to new ideas and just talk about it freely? I think not just for college students, but really for anybody. It's incumbent upon us on difficult topics to make sure that we are open-minded, that we're willing to listen, and that we make sure we're talking about, recognize you're talking about people. And so it's always going to be a sensitive topic. You're not talking about statistics, you're talking about human beings. And so it's incumbent upon us to always use responsible language and make sure that we're just trying to be respectful of the people around us. and understanding that you know we don't have to give respect in expectation of getting respect back you know we have an obligation to make sure we are being respectful to people even if they're not being respectful to us and that's difficult that's really tough especially on issues that we're really passionate about um, but I don't take it personally when people disagree with me um, part of that is just um, being old enough to have a thick skin on these issues and working on this long enough to recognize some people just don't know all the things I know. And some people are just really scared and fear drives a lot of those things. But if we start from the perspective of, we're talking about human beings and listening rather than just yelling at each other, I think that goes such a long way. You're not always gonna agree. You're not always gonna budge people off of their positions. But um, anything you talk about can always be taken down to a calm conversational level. It just requires us to make sure that we're putting in that work. Yes, and um, as we have talked, immigration relies heavily on policies and policy making. How do you think that we can influence these policies? You can always vote, it's the best way to do it. Um, you know, I think that um, aside from voting, which I think is important for all of us, we have a limited amount of time. Figure out the issues that are most important to you and do the research on those. And I think so that you have an informed opinion. And we know on immigration specifically that the way 
leadership talks about immigrants really impacts the way the general public views immigrants. So that's true whether you're talking about political leadership in Washington or you're talking about the pastor at your local church or the person in charge of your HOA or anyone in charge of your campus organizations. And so I think it's incumbent upon all of us to view ourselves as community leaders. And so that way, if we're using responsible language and we're talking about people as human beings and we're using facts, not emotions, just facts, you know, correct when people are wrong. It's okay to be that boring person at the party being like, actually, that's not true at all. And I don't have any qualms about doing that out in public. I joke to, to older crowds that I'm, you know, the boring person at the cocktail party who always has, well, actually, you're wrong. And, you know, maybe you don't want to do that, and that's okay. But I think that if you, if you really want to be, if you really want to have, if you really want to have good conversations on these topics, it is important for all of us to be the leaders we want to see and to model that sort of behavior that we want to see in our political leadership. Um, UCF has a large population of um, racial diversity. Mm -hmm. How do you think, or what are some things we can do to help those students in this campus? You know, I just think being people's friend is, is really important. We know that people, um, particularly when you're talking about the immigrant community, people integrate faster to their communities when they have a community that embraces them. And so to the extent that you can you know, treat everybody as a human being, treat them as a friend, and go out of your way to help them, I think matters so much. You know, peers matter in this debate. And to the extent that you can be the peer that helps aid someone's transition, regardless of whether they are new to the United States or just new to Orlando, I think that's really important in, in talking about people becoming part of our community. What are some words of encouragement you would give to this um, generation? You know, um, I think don't be afraid to fail. That's one of the things that, you know, I'm, I'm almost 37, so I'm so much older than all of you, but um, don't be afraid to fail because yes, it hurts in the moment, but you do learn from it. And oftentimes you can, what I call fail up. You know, you take those experiences and you figure out how to make yourself better. And so it's really hard when you're young and eager and you want to go out and change the world and be prosperous to be, to be afraid to take those risks and to be upset if something doesn't work out, but that's okay. You're gonna fail and it's gonna be okay. You're gonna pick yourself back up. Perfect. Um, do you wanna add anything else to I would just say always remember, you know, immigration, despite what you hear is, you know, if you look at the facts, immigration is really good for our economy. It's really good for our culture. It's made us who we are today as Americans. We're joined by a set of ideals, not, not a single culture. Um, and that's the beautiful part about America. That's why everyone wants to be American. That's why we're the number one destination for migrants worldwide. So um, it's, you know, make sure that you are having fact-based conversations. Immigration's good. Thank you. <laughs> well, Ms. Collins, it has been an absolute pleasure to speak with you today. And we thank you so much for being here and sharing your experiences with us and your knowledge. If you want to learn more about today's guest, our mission, or our program, you can visit us at the PMBF website or go to any of our social media pages. For the Middle East and South Asia Studies program here at UCF, this is Valeria Palnetto. Thank you so much for listening.